0: Uh, and Paul's going to close out the series of Mark for us today. We've been in Mark now for almost the entire year, and so we're wrapping up today. And so I thought it'd be great to have another lens and another view on this great story of the resurrection. And so Paul, our team, is going to be here. Let me pray for him, and then, uh, and then he'll do his thing. So, God, we thank you for this man. Thank you, God, for the Bible. Thanks for the gospel of Mark, how you've changed us, transformed us, made us more like Jesus. God, we pray you just do more of the same today in us and through us as we go back to our cities as we leave. God, we bless this guy as he brings the word. Holy Spirit, be in this place and do your work. In name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Vince. All right. It is an absolute thrill for me to be here with you guys. The last time I was here was about a year ago, and I think I shared a story of when Vince and I worked together, and 710, 710 is kind of a a college young adult ministry that we have, Redemption Gilbert, and and at one particular night, our worship leader, um, it was his 18th birthday, and so at the close of our service, Vince... um, I'm getting there. <laughs> At the close of our service, um, Vince came up and prayed for Jed and his 18th birthday, and uh, as Vince is such a caring guy, and you probably know that, but he began to pray for Jed's changing body, which was incredibly awkward, um, but effective, because Jed is now here, and Jed is married uh, about a month. You've been married a month, Jed? two months. So um, all that to say that if Vince has ever prayed for you in a particular or peculiar way, um, then good on you because good things are coming for you. But I love Vince and Verity. I consider him just a great friend. I love how God is growing his family. I love how God is growing this family. I have uh, learned much from Vince Um, Just in the way that he cares for people. I have learned much from you, this community, and the way that you love your city, uh, and the way that you pray for other churches. I know Ricardo mentioned that last week, but it's just such an amazing thing, and um, I want you to know that um, I am for you. Gilbert is for you. If you're not familiar with Gilbert, Gilbert is the place you go when you get three kids in a minivan. Um, some Some of your parents live there. They say hi, and to call them... Um, but, uh, Gilbert, just we have so much to learn from you guys. Again, the way that you love your city, the way that you love Jesus, and you want to see the gospel come to bear here and in places like Guatemala. So we love you guys. It's an honor, a humble honor for me to be able to come and share God's word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, open to uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter— we're actually going to start in chapter 15 and then kind of launch into that section that was read for us already— this morning, and uh, I'm going to read that. My, my hope is that this is brief because I have three children in uh, your children's ministry here, and they are spastic like their dad, so out of mercy for your volunteers, we're going to try to motor through this quickly this morning, uh, this incredible section. Uh, Mark chapter 15, we'll start in verse 40. Uh, the text is, will be up on the screen. It is on the screen. Let me, let me read this again for us. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Siloam. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, I, I didn't make a, a big enough point about this in, in my notes, but as I was reading this this weekend, I, it, it stands out to me more, and, and, and it's the importance of, women, not only in the Gospels and in the Scripture, but women in the church. You make up more than 50%. You're very important. You don't always get, I I think, the 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 pub that you should get, but these women who followed Jesus, their role was very difficult. They did all the, the cooking and the and the and the, they a lot of times they would sew clothes for Jesus. They also uh, the scripture tells us that some of them had kind of part time jobs and they would help provide money for the ministry of Jesus and his followers and things that were going on. So all that to say, I love that the scripture brings to light the importance of women uh, not only in this particular text and passage that we'll look at today, but really. Um, throughout the Scriptures. In verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. He's speaking of Jesus. And summing the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb, and had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Solomon, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us? From the entrance of the tomb, and looking up, they saw that a stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And see the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray one more time. we has been a lot of prayer here this morning, which is fantastic. Let's pray just one last time and ask God really to speak to us. This is not just a, an event or a gathering where you listen to some guy you don't know give a speech. We're asking for God to do something incredible, that he would in some way speak through this really broken, jacked-up guy to you, and that by your hearing it, your heart is stirred up to have a greater affection for Jesus than you've ever had before. That's not my doing. I believe that's the doing of the Holy Spirit. And so let's just, let's go before God and ask Him to do that. Father God, thank you already for what you've allowed us to say about you. God, just in our time of singing, and our time of praise and worship to you, God, a confession of who you are and what you've done. And God, those truths are amazing. And God, those are the only truths that we stand on this morning. God, this time is not about anyone except for the person of Jesus Christ. His name is the name that is above all names. And God, I pray that when we leave, that His name is the only name on our lips. God, now I just, I pray for your mercy and for your grace. And God, that you would speak through me. Holy Spirit, I pray for the gift of preaching now. I pray that I would be controlled by you, God. I pray that you would minister grace now through the, just the, the proclaiming of your word. God, I pray for the people in this room who do not yet know you. They come as skeptics. They, they come um, um, as, as people who just think this whole thing is silly. And God, I um, love, love, love that they are in our midst. And God, I pray um, that they would know how much you love them today. God, I thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Kind of every week, once a week, my wife and I have a little bit of a tradition, much more kind of a routine than anything. But um, we will, after we put the kids to bed, we'll just kind of Netflix and chill. We'll just watch a movie, um, you know, and... And but, but we have very differing kind of like opinions on what movies are good movies or great movies, um, so most of the movies that my wife really enjoys because she 's way more classy than me and intelligent than I am. she likes these very complicated love stories, like you know two teenagers with cancer or something or you know like a family that fights all day but they love each other whatever they're like all these and I'm like that's my whole world I don't want to like get into that my, all my movies like usually involve somebody yelling get to the chopper or like robots fighting each other um, but the movies that I love the most are the ones that like where the hero always wins at the end it's very predictable it's very great but the hero Always wins, Um, and 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 this text here is like that. I guess that's why I love those movies because I read my Bible so much. Just kidding, (laughs) but but if you like movies where the hero wins at the end, then you're gonna love this passage here. And in the first that 15 40 through 41 section. Um, Mark shows us these witnesses to the death of Jesus, and notably women. And Mark kind of of emphasizes these witnesses as a testimony to the gospel. It's very particular uh, uh, there uh, that Mark would use these women because if you were inventing this story, and I get it, the resurrection story is really difficult for us to get our minds around, but if if you were inventing the story in this particular time and place, you would never have used women as observers. Women in this culture, and at this time, had very little social status, if any at all. Um, In fact, women could not serve as a witness in the court of law because they were not seen as credible. So if you committed a crime and the only people who witnessed it were women, and you were there to give witness or account to that in a court, your, uh, your witness would be totally thrown out because you were not credible. In fact, one of the women we see was Mary Magdalene, who at one point, the scripture tells us, had seven demons living inside of her that Jesus cast out. So now you have a woman who also had demons inside of her. So she was totally without reputation of someone that you would listen to. But I think the greater point that Mark is trying to make in verse 40 is that the faith of these women, it's kind of a detached faith or an imperfect faith because he tells us that they were at a distance. They were kind of keeping their their distance from the whole scene that was unfolding. But we really don't want to be too hard on these women because at least they're there. We don't see the disciples there. They're utterly absent. In all the Gospels, we're told that only one of them, uh, John, was there who was at the cross. But the point that I think Mark is trying to make in verse 40 and 41 there is that faith and followers come from very unlikely places. Faith and followers come from unlikely places, and maybe you've discovered that in your own life, how God seems to randomly knit people and opportunity and places together in our stories In 1985, in the summer of 1985, there was this woman named Rose Neff. Rose Neff walked through my neighborhood knocking on doors, um, inviting children to something called a vacation Bible school. So Rose Neff knocks on our door. Uh, At the time, I think I was about seven years old. I had a sister who was six and another sister who was four and another sister who was uh, a a baby. Rose Neff knocks on the door. My parents have never laid eyes on her. My parents are not believers. They're not followers of Jesus. She comes and she's talking to them about something called Vacation Bible School, which they never heard of. And she said, on Monday, I'd like to come by with a school bus and pick up your kids and take them away to a place you've never been, to something you've never heard of, with people you've never known. My parents said, thank you, please take them. That would be great. I can't even imagine a scenario where this would happen today, um, but it happened there. And I'm so thankful that it did because that woman's faithfulness or that woman's invitation started a chain of events that leads to me here today telling the greatest story the world has ever known. In fact, through that woman and kind of her ministry, you know, it all happened at different times and places, but my entire family, my immediate family, all came to know and love Jesus, and they're serving them in some way or capacity today. And what seemed like a very random occurrence, this random woman we'd never seen taking us to a place we'd never heard of, has really, God has used to kind of create This legacy of the gospel, not a legacy of Rose Neff, not a legacy of me or my family, but a legacy of the gospel. And that's what God does. God just takes these kind of seemingly random people and events and knits them together. And I guess the kind of side point for us is there. You never know. You never know how God is going to use the small bit of even imperfect faith that you exercise. The the even small bit of obedience and love for people and love for Jesus that you exercise, you just never know what God will do through that. In verse 42 and 43, we start to learn about this man named Joseph. There's some important things Mark tells us about him. The first is that he was a respected man. He was a part of something called the Sanhedrin, which was essentially this religious council. He was a wealthy man. Uh, We know that because he tells us that he bought a linen shroud. He had a round stone over his own personal tomb, both signs of affluence. If you did have your own tomb, you probably had a square rock. Uh, We we know that. But he had a round uh, stone over his personal tomb so that he was a wealthy man and affluent man. He was a redeemed man. The Scripture says he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a resolute man. If you look back in the gospel of Luke, in Luke 23, there was a meeting of the council that they should crucify Jesus. And uh, the, the scripture tells us that uh, Joseph wasn't present at that vote to condemn Jesus. He didn't, he didn't believe that they should. And he goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. And when he does, this is kind of like his coming out as a disciple or as a follower of Jesus. Look at verse 43 with, with me. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage. Why did that take courage? The the Romans were very fond of crucifixion. And part of the appeal to them was that they would leave the body hanging on this cross for a few days and so that birds and dogs and other wild animals would begin to eat this decaying body. And that served as a signal and as a symbol to other would-be criminals that you don't want to be involved in the criminal activity that you're doing because this is what will happen to you. And so for Joseph to go and to ask for the body of someone that was crucified, because Romans normally would not allow someone who was crucified to, be, uh, to have a proper burial. So, but there's great political and social cost for Joseph in this moment. His status and his reputation, his place of prominence is threatened by this action. And I think as we consider Joseph, that might be us a little bit. Well, we're settled in our faith, it's an internal decision, we would say. We're settled in our faith, but we're yet still secret in our following. We can disagree about sin and injustice and all these things that are happening around us, but it doesn't move us off the sidelines or out of the shadows. We have convictions about God's prescribed way of living in the Scripture, but yet we don't have the courage to actually live by them and obey the Word of God. I think one of the purposes that Joseph fills in this narrative, apart from telling us what happens to the body of Jesus is that Mark is trying to tell us and to show us what happens when someone truly sees Christ crucified. Because his faith is silent until he beholds the Messiah, the Christ, the true God crucified for the sins of his people. And and seeing that, beholding that, that's when a boldness and a courage spring up in the life of a Jesus follower. And that's what you have to wrestle with. You, have you seen the cross? Have you Behold the cross. I listened to Rick's message last week, an amazing job that he did. That's another reason I'm kind of upset I went after Rick. He's a great preacher. But, but if you've seen or beheld the cross of Christ, it should stir up in you a courage. Because the cross compels courageous and costly faith. In your homes, in your neighborhoods, on your campus, in your city, seeing the cross of Christ stirs up a courageous and costly faith. Verse 44, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is dead already. Usually in crucifixion, it would be about two or three days that it would take for a person to die. And so he asks the centurion, probably the centurion from verse 39, who proclaimed that, yes, this is, the, this is God, this is, the, this is the Son of God. Finally, Pilate relinquishes the body of Jesus. Look at verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Matthew, in his gospel, he tells us this was a new tomb, so this fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus would be named among the criminals and the rich men. John tells us um, that this tomb is in a garden. I think this is very significant because in Genesis chapter 3, Rick took you guys there last week, in Genesis chapter 3, death comes into the garden. And here in a garden, we're going to see that death is ultimately defeated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely paramount to those who would follow Jesus because it is the pinnacle moment of human history. Because for with his resurrection, death is not merely escaped for a moment, but is conquered forever. By the way, you're free to yell that out anytime you want. Uh, It's not to pump my gas, but what we're talking about is incredible. Thanks. (laughs) I'm also comfortable with right on, or that's right, whatever. Death, um, death is weird. If you've been to a funeral of a loved one, you know that there's really nothing that prepares you for that moment. About about 11 years ago, my, my grandfather, my dad's dad died, and, um... I, just, I, I have been to a few funerals, I've actually like, officiated a funeral before, but this one, for, for whatever reason, just stands out more to me than any other funeral I've been to. And I just remember walking up to the casket and looking at him and, you know, here's this guy that used to take me deep-sea fishing and you know, yell at me a lot and kind of all these memories that we had. Now he's just there. It's just a body, motionless. And we know the emotions that come with death. There's this sadness, yes, but there's just this finality to a person's existence. And, and, and that must have been the atmosphere. That must have been the, the attitude that the women had in that morning. In chapter 16, we see that the women began to go. now. So Saturday was a very long day for them. Saturday, the, the Sabbath, there was, there was no shops are open. You can't do any work. They had a limited time uh, for them to go get the supplies, the spices that they went. So they get up really early, about 6 a.m., on a Sunday, and on the way there, they're asking, okay, well, what about that stone? Mark tells us it was, a, it was a large stone. There's just these two women. Again, the disciples have scattered, split. All the other followers have split. I say, what about that large stone? And it shows me that clearly the women were not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. Again, this, this imperfect faith. If you're of the thinking that as a follower of Jesus, you have to have it all figured out, or that your faith just has to be rock solid— Look at these women here with their kind of imperfect faith. All they know is we love Jesus. We want to go to him, right? They didn't grasp or maybe even believe everything about Jesus, but they went to him because of their deep adoration and love for God. And I think that honors God. And and if we just race past this little section here, I think there's an important part that we will miss, an important truth that we miss, because it's so often that while on our journey of following Jesus, that there are potential obstacles and hurdles that can and do consume us, that stress us out, and and we question, how are we ever going to overcome all these hurdles? We look at a refugee crisis, and it's so complicated. How could we ever do? What could we ever do? How could we ever help? We look at poverty in our cities, we look at the poor, we just, it's just so massive, it's so entangled, it's so complicated. What can we do? The orphan crisis in our state, that Redemption Church as a whole is trying to engage and work through, but it just seems like it, it, it's one piece of red tape after another, working through that. We, we, we're at Gilbert Campus, we, we try to do work in rural southwest Alaska, it's extremely complicated, we're working in Ethiopia, you're working in Guadalupe, Guatemala, you're working in all these different places. and and it's complicated, and and it's difficulty. But then we get there, and we we see that God has already taken care of it. We get consumed with doubts and fear, only to get there and see that God has taken care of it. We show up early. We want to do what we're supposed to do, and God's already been there and done that. We get to the tomb, and we see God's already done the work. When we show up with the intention to serve God, we we take with us the confidence that he's already done through the resurrection of Christ, everything possible to do the greatest work for the kingdom of God. God is not asking you to raise Jesus from the dead. He's not asking you to break any curse. He's not asking you to break any chain. He's not asking you to defeat the enemy. He's just asking you to show up And realize that he's already been there and that he's already won. And when you submit your life to serve Jesus and you walk in the freedom that he purchased and he secured, show up wherever God has put you. Whatever God has put on your heart, show up. Ready to do what God tells you to do, but know that God's done the work. The victory is already won verse 4 and 5 of chapter 16, read this with me. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out. The stone is rolled away to allow the women to see that the tomb is empty. A stone is not going to hold Jesus in. If you look in the end of Gospels, other places, we see he walks through walls, he can walk through a stone. Verse 5, I love this. It tells us that they were alarmed. Hashtag understatement. So they walk in, and here is this gleaming white angel. And they're alarmed. And he says, don't be alarmed. Verse 6, important, important verse. If you're a highlighter, note-taker type person, You want to circle this, put a star by it, whatever. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. That's right. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This verse, I think, uh, unfortunately has become very common to us. But this phrase and this truth of he has risen has absolutely shaken human history and existence like no other phrase has. He is not here. The the Greek here is way better because it says he has been raised. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God the Father raised his son. And the rest of the New Testament tells us why. Because it was his seal of approval and pleasure on the sacrifice of his son. Jesus died innocently. He died perfectly. And the loving Father vindicates the name of Jesus. It's his announcement of not guilty. God raised him. He is not here. Now, if you're with us here this morning, and you, by your own confession, your own admission, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I extend just our absolute joy and thrill that you are here with us. You're loved. You're accepted. We love that you are here. But please pay attention to this truth, that he's he's not here, because the Bible tells us that we're all born into sin. And you might not like that word. You know, might use that word. But sin is a, it's a rebellion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an offensive war against God. Um, we could at least agree that, okay, there's something broken in me. There's something broken in our world. And that sin, the Scripture says, finds our soul condemned to death, a very real physical death and an even worse fate, separation from God for all eternity in a very real place called hell, unless we turn to him and repentance, and faith. The Bible is very clear that those apart from Christ are dead, but the Bible is also extremely clear that God loves bringing dead people back to life. He loves it. He makes dead bones move, dead bodies breathe, dead hearts that beat for Him, and if this truth is not yet a reality for you, will you consider it? This church, this, this time together, this is all centered on this amazing truth. So you didn't wander into or get invited to a meeting of people who figured it out, who are somehow smarter than you. This is a celebration of dead people who have had life breathed into them. Our, our claim is not that we are better. We're not. That we have somehow earned approval or acceptance. We have not. Our only claim is that God has done everything in his mercy and grace and love to bring us back to life. And now we are compelled out of joy, not, not duty, but real joy and love to speak and to show the good news to a broken and dying world. There, there are things, I, and listen, I get it, I'm a pastor, but there are things that, that happen in a church service that, that look strange and weird from the outside looking in. I, I, I know, there's a lot of things we do, and was like, why do we do that? I don't get it right? But they are all a means for us to say thank you to a living God who has made us alive in Christ Jesus. The point for us at Redemption Church, and all congregations agree on this, so I can just speak for for you as well as I'd speak for Gilbert or any other place. The point for us is really quite simple. All of our life is all for Jesus because all of our life comes from him. All of our life, every part of our life is all for Jesus because all of our life comes from Him. Jesus had to be raised from the dead so that He could raise us up from the dead so that we could live in freedom that He purchased and won for us on the cross. And so our only ask of you Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, our only ask of you, we're not asking you to join this church. We're not even asking for you to give any money. We're not even asking for you to come back. It's Vince's church, so I can say that. He probably wants you to come back. Our only ask for you this morning, if that's you, is that are you going to continue in your deadness, or will you consider the life that is found in Jesus? Would you consider the life that's found in Jesus? Verse 7 in chapter 16 says this, the man speaks to them, he says, the angel speaks to them, he says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. It's so interesting to me that the the disciples um, aren't expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. Nobody expects Jesus to come back from the dead. If you go back to Mark chapter 14, he told them before he goes in the garden, he says, hey, y'all, just to let you know, um, I'm going to be raised. I'm coming back. But nobody believed it. It's also very interesting to me here that Peter is singled out. And I think Peter is singled out because who would have struggled with this more than Peter? Peter, if you, if you remember in the story, he's the one who stood up and said, I will ne- I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, uh, actually... You're going to deny me three times. And that happens. Peter's confronted with whether or not he's a follower of Jesus. He denies three times. So can you imagine, can you just imagine the kind of anguish and regret that Peter was afflicted with in this moment? Maybe you can. Maybe that's very familiar to you. Maybe you know what it is to do the thing you swore you'd never do. The compromise you said you'd never make, the boundary you'd never cross, the trap that you had seen and heard of so many fall into, but not you, you'd never be a statistic, and then you were. Then you did what you never thought you'd do, and not just once. In fact, now you sit in this room, and it's happened so many times that you don't know how you would ever get back. Here's the good news for you this morning. God singles you out. Maybe that doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Because when God singles you out, it means that you're not too far gone. It means that you are the object of his affection, not his aggression. You're the object of his affection, not of his aggression. He is the shepherd, the scripture tells us, who literally moves heaven and earth to chase down the wandering sheep. He pursues his own at supreme and extravagant cost to himself. In this passage, we see all these outcasts. These people who have been pushed to the margins and they're brought near by the gospel. Peter is pushed out because of his sin. The gospel brings him near. Joseph is pushed out to the margins because of his convictions. The gospel brings him near. The women are pushed out because of their, their, their culture. Jesus brings them all near. We love stories and movies of lost things that are recovered, aren't we? We, 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 we love those kind of movies. So, the, Taken, I will find you, right? Whatever. I've wrestled all week with trying to do a Liam Neeson. I can't do it. Um, well, we love that, like, Taken, Man on Fire, the Denzel thing. Yeah. yeah, one guy. We saw it. It was good, right? When he goes, good. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Great movie. I don't even know what that movie's about, but Han Solo's in it, so I like it. But, <laughs> but we love these stories of lost things that get found or recovered, and that's because the longing of every human heart is that they might be found, that they might be brought home that they may be loved in an infinite way. and in the Scripture, Jesus tells these stories. He tells these parables of lost things and people that are recovered. And all these stories end in an absolute party breaking out. When the disciples run away, and when Peter denies your sin, my failure, those things do not have the last word in our stories you got to hear this. Jesus foreknew the failures of his disciples and Peter, but he also foreknew that those failures were not unforgivable. If you are in Christ, your failure isn't fatal or final. Our Savior, not our sin, has the final word over our lives and our future. Despite what you might think or what you've been led to believe, if you are a follower and a lover of Jesus, your sin will not speak loudest over you because your Savior has silenced it. Ends in verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's kind of a weird place to end. It feels kind of like the end of Lost. Anybody ever watched Lost? That show Lost, right? And it ends, you're like, did it end? Is it over? Is it it done? What happened? What did I miss? That's what it kind of feels like here. But I think it's very intentional by Mark. Because what we've seen over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark is like, what Mark does is he shows us the glory of Christ, and then he shows us how ordinarily people respond to that glory in either fear or faith. So if you look through the Gospel of Mark, these stories with Jesus where he calms the storm, sick are healed, dead are raised, demons are cast out, people see that power and they either respond in fear or in faith. And I think what Mark is wanting to ask us and say to us is that the resurrected Christ speaks to us through his spirit and his word. How, how then will you now respond? How will you respond to this resurrected Jesus? Will it be fear? That, that somehow following Jesus will cost too much. I'm afraid it'll, co- it'll cost my status. I'm afraid it'll cost my friendships. I'm afraid that it'll cost me my freedom. Or maybe you're just afraid that He wouldn't accept you. Or will you respond in faith? When I say faith, a confidence in who God is. That Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the risen king, that he says he's the way, the truth, the life, that he's the God of immeasurably more, that he's the bringer of life wherever there is death, that he's the conqueror of Satan and sin and death. Will you respond in confidence that God is who he says he is? For Christians, this faith, this confidence, I think it looks like how the story ultimately ends. Now, if you look at the other gospel accounts, and you should, you should read your Bible, see how the other gospel accounts end this. We found these ten men, these followers of Jesus, they're all huddled in a room, door locked, dead bolted. And these followers of Jesus are walking this very fine line between fear and faith. In this group, this is a really rough, around-the-edges type of bunch. They're uneducated, they're confused, there's no money, there's very few social graces in this group, blue collar, thick calluses. This is not a group that you would expect a whole lot from. And they're huddled in this room, doors locked, afraid. And then God breaks into the room and back into their lives. Jesus appears to his followers. God pursues his people. He doesn't wait for them to come find him. He enters into their fear, their barricaded world, and he enters in with an announcement of peace. And the good news for us this morning is that it doesn't matter how thick the walls are and how many locks are on your doors, Jesus says, I'm coming to you and I'm announcing peace. This is grace. This is the gospel. It's not you having a life that's all together. It's not you having your house in order. It's God coming to you, walking through the wall to bring you the hope of his resurrection. And when he says, I'm coming to bring you peace, this is not just some inspirational talk from Jesus, because it's based on, secured in, founded in the wounds, the proof of his wounds. The wounds make it possible for us to have the peace of God and peace with God. And this morning, you don't have to unlock the doors. You just have to recognize that Jesus is coming through the walls. Something happens to a man when he witnesses someone who's risen from the dead. Something stirs within the soul of man when he stands within inches of God. And it started for these ten men. They watch God come through a locked door, and standing in their midst, he says to them, As my Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus gives them a mission. The Scripture says he gave them the spirit And he did. He sends them out. He sends them to ports. He sends them to courtyards. He sends them to synagogues. He sends them to prisons. He sends them to palaces. They went everywhere, and the message of Jesus dominoes across the civilized world. This group, they were this infectious fever. They were a moving organism. They refused to be stopped, and the Scripture says that these uneducated drifters absolutely turned the world upside down for the kingdom of God. And the question, Christian, that we have to wrestle with is, What if we could see that again? What if we could see that happen again? A lot of people say, oh, it's just too hard. The world is just too post-Christian. They're too far gone. And so they deadbolt the door and they huddle together in their churches and their small groups. And when they do that, there's a parade of corpses marching to hell. What would it take for your generation to ignite with this kind of passion for people to know the risen Savior? Because all it took for these men was the truth that Jesus was dead, and now he's alive again. And they took that and absolutely ran with it. And the world's been changed forever because of it. Maybe for us, um, it's just that we need to see him again. We need to truly see him for who he is. The Bible uses the word behold. We need to behold and witness his majesty, the grandeur and the glory, the bigness of who he is. And we need to celebrate his victory. We need to celebrate it with our mouths, celebrate it with our lives, the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. Maybe we need to hear that commission again. Will you tell them that Jesus is risen? Will you tell them that he is coming back? We need to be a people who see and hear again this incredible story of a resurrected king. Every week here, um, you take communion. You have a time of communion and reflection. And now is that time. And, and as you, in this quiet stillness, which by the way is a gift to you, because I'm sure you don't always get that in your week, would you reflect on the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And just ask God, what would you have me do with that truth? What would you have me do with the reality that you are risen, that you've defeated death, that you've defeated Satan, that you've defeated sin? What would you do with the reality that you are a God who pursues? What would you do, God, with the reality that I am very much like Peter? Peter? And you are pursuing me even this morning, right now. Let's pray, and we'll have a quiet moment of reflection. God, we love you. God, we thank you for this incredible story, this incredible truth. God, it's our only boast, it's our only brag, God, not that we have done anything, God, to win our salvation or deserve our salvation. But God, we do. We gather as people who were once dead, but now we have life because of your finished work on the cross and because of your powerful resurrection. God, in this moment of quiet, and I know that right now people are really just trying to process everything they've heard from the Scriptures and things they've heard from you this morning. God, we want to take this little time that we have left this morning to say thank you, and God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.